I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we will be considering verses 17 to chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians 4, 17 to chapter 5, verse 2. As we begin, um, let's start with one of my favorite books, C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that story, or in that book, Eustace, who was the cousin of the Pevensies, Eustace Scrub, enters Narnia with his cousins and gets turned into a dragon. That was simply a physical manifestation of what Eustace really was inside, selfish and greedy. Then, as the story goes, Aslan changed Eustace back into a boy. And let's hear Eustace tell that story. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. There it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. There was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Now, the undragoning of Eustace is a picture of God's transforming grace in conversion. And that conversion, according to Paul in this text, demands a radical break with our former way of life. So let's read the text. Ephesians 4, verse 17 to chapter 5, verse 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul calls our former way of life futile. He is making an objective assessment based on the fundamental reality that the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, life is vain, futile, and without purpose unless it is ordered around God and His purposes, according to Clinton Arnold. And that is a reality that Paul wants us to understand. It's not just his objective assessment, it is God's judgment on life lived apart from God. And so he goes on. And tells us that no matter how brilliant and educated you might be, unless you submit to the authority of God over you, your understanding of reality is distorted. It's not just walking in the futility of your mind. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. If you don't acknowledge God, it's like making calculations with the wrong value of pi. No matter how good your equation is, how well put together that equation is, you've got the wrong constant value. It's going to be a wrong calculation. And worse, we are alienated, according to verse 18, from the life of God because we are willfully ignorant. The language of ignorance there is not to speak of a lack of data. It is rather that we have hardened our hearts against the truth. I appreciate the honesty of Thomas Nagel, who writes in his book, The Last Word, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. 
See, that's what Paul is talking about here when he speaks of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Or as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, the truth of God has been made clear, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, Paul is not saying that we are, that unbelievers are as bad as they could be. What he is saying is that our best at accomplishments apart from God, are tainted by our rebellion against God. And so there is no way they would please our holy God. In fact, even the good we do is impure because we are motivated by a selfish desire to seek our way. That's the judgment of God upon our best efforts apart from him. So not only do we face the judgment of God, chapter 2 talks about us being children of wrath. In calling it futility, Paul is helping us understand that our alienation from the life-giving life of God lives a hole in our souls that nothing will fill our best attempts to replace God fall short because nothing will replace God. Nothing compares to Him. And the more we try to replace God, the more calloused we become. And the more we give ourselves up to sensuality. We become greedy to practice every kind of impurity because it doesn't satisfy us. And so we just keep thinking, if I can only have more, just a little bit more, then I'll be happy. But it won't satisfy. Beckett Cook tells his story. He was a successful Hollywood set designer, and he says this in his book, A Change of Affections. All my searching was leading me back to the same place. Nowhere. And time was no longer on my side. The older I got, the less and less these kinds of explorations and experiences satisfied me. The law of diminishing returns was starting to set in. Nothing made this more apparent than when I was in Paris for Fashion Week in March 2009. I attended several runway shows and plenty of after parties. One night... An epiphany struck me during Stella McCartney's soiree at a club in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. The place was packed. After socializing for a couple of hours, I took a moment to look around and contemplate the scene. In this sea of beautiful people, I suddenly felt an intense sense of emptiness. Not exactly sure what brought it on, but there I was, in the middle of Paris, at an ultra-chic fashion party feeling dead inside. For a moment, utter panic filled my body. I thought, if this stuff isn't doing it for me anymore, what on earth will? I've done everything, met everyone, been everywhere. What am I going to do for the next 50 or 60 years of my life? I was running out of options. I stayed up all night pondering the future, and the future seemed 
Tolstoy's words in a confession rang true to me. One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. Beckett Cook testifies to the fact that any attempt to live apart from God is like drinking seawater. It just leaves you even thirstier. So if you are here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, we would urge you to bow the knee to him and be reconciled to God. Will you not take refuge in Jesus who has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly? Now for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is reminding us of the horror of our old ways and he's telling us we need to make a clean break because we are now God's new creation. That's why he is emphatic in verse 20 when he tells us, but you have, that is not the way you learned Christ. We've not simply been acquainted with Jesus. We have learned Jesus. Peter O'Brien would define learning Christ this way. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. It's a relationship. As we talked about in Ephesians 3, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We have a house guest. In fact, it's not just a house guest. He's actually the one who owns the house. And he's reshaping us from within. So we don't just agree with the facts about Jesus. We are being conformed to Jesus because we have been united to him through faith. And so what Paul is saying is that we must reflect the transforming presence of Christ more and more in our lives. So that none of us can say what a lot of people say. This is who I am. I'm, gonna, I'm always going to be this way. Ever say that? Ever hear that? See, that statement cannot come from a believer. In calling us to put on and put off, Paul is calling us to a life of continuing repentance. See, all too often, even as believers, we resist change. Not just change in terms of circumstances, but the change that God wants to work in our lives. And so what often happens is that we put pressure on others to change so that we don't have to change, right? Or for some of us, or to be frank, most of us, we resist change by trying to change the situation around us. That way, I don't have to adjust. I'll make the circumstances around me change. But let me ask you to think about this. Perhaps, in the providence of God, He has arranged your circumstances in love in order to expose 
your own need to change. And that God is using the people around us to frustrate, annoy, bother, disturb, whatever. To expose our broken desires and lead us to repentance. It has to begin with our hearts. Because putting off and putting on that Paul talks about in verses 22 to 24 is not simply a makeover. During those days, clothing conveyed status and identity. So when Paul says to put off your old self in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, is drawing on the distinctions that clothing made in that culture. In that culture, only a Roman citizen could wear a toga, for example. Slaves were forbidden to wear a toga. When Paul says, put on, put off, in the minds of the Ephesian believers, that was talking about their changed status. And a plebeian, an ordinary Roman citizen, could not wear the toga of a patrician, somebody of higher class. And when Paul is saying, put off, put on, he's reminding us we have a different status, a new status. We are new creation. And therefore, we need to act accordingly. Because in learning Christ, in being in relationship with Christ, in whom is truth, who is the embodiment of truth, we have a new self. Verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the way you and I are right now is actually a distortion of God's good plan. We live in the already, not yet. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been reconciled to God. We have new hearts, but we are still being renewed and recreated in the image of Christ. You can put it this way. God is fashioning our true self out of the wreckage of our old lives as we submit to his renewing work. God's intent is to make us like Jesus who alone lived the fully human life of flourishing that God intended when he created us. A life in full communion with the Father. A life lived in service to the people around him. A life conducted in obedience to God so that it fully pleased the Father. See, that's the flourishing God intends for us. And this new self 
would be the fruit of Christ making himself at home in our lives, changing our values and desires. That's where the change happens. It happens in our hearts as our desires are changed. Look at verse 22. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's where the issue is. Our distorted desires, our misplaced loves. And what Christ is doing is in relationship with us as his love showers us daily with his goodness. He is giving us new affections patterned after his passions. So we must change. The question is, okay, how? What, what does that look like? In the succeeding verses, from verse 25 onward, Paul gives us five concrete examples of what it means to put off and put on to show us what transformation looks like. They're not exhaustive, but they are meant to spur us to imagine how other areas in our lives need to reflect the transforming presence of Jesus. And these examples are not simply individualistic or external behavioral changes. If you know your Old Testament, you will hear the echoes in verse 25 to 32 of Old Testament passages that speak of the New Covenant community. So that Paul, in this passage, is describing how the church must transform in order to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. They describe for us what it means for the church to be an outpost of the kingdom. Or if you will, what it means for us to be a movie trailer of heaven. Because heaven... And the new creation isn't clouds and harps. It's far more interesting than that. So let's get into it. In chapter 4, verse 25, Paul is citing Zechariah 8:16, which describes the new Jerusalem community among whom God dwells. Let's turn there. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16. Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. I know I should have put it on the screen, but wanted to see how good we were. <laughs> Zechariah 8.16 says, These are the th- uh, let me start from verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate declares the Lord. It's about community. And it goes beyond merely truth-telling. 
but it is not less than truth-telling. It speaks to us becoming a community of trustworthy people whose integrity can be counted on. And we don't just tell the truth to people about them. It also tells us that we tell the truth about ourselves. That's the harder part, isn't it? We're happy to tell the truth about other people. But when it comes to talking about my own sin, my own darkness, um, please keep away. <laughs> Nothing to see, right? But Paul is telling us, in telling us, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He is telling us that we as a church need to be a safe place of transparency and acceptance. We are members one of another. We are connected to each other. And what one does affects the other. So we need to take people seriously enough to love them unconditionally. Well, we need to be a congregation where we can be open about our struggles, knowing that people love us unconditionally and where we will be held accountable to practice the truth because we are committed to one another's growth and flourishing. We speak truth to one another. Yes, theological truth. Yes, the truth about others, about them, but also the truth about us so that we may grow together for we are members one of another. Then it goes on. We follow God's example in the way we respond to evil. Be angry and do not sin. Let, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Dave just read Psalm 4. That's Paul quoting Psalm 4, where the psalmist is grieving over false accusations. So on one hand, we need to share God's anger with sin. That's part of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. We hate sin the way God hates it. But Paul recognizes that as people in the process of being made new, we need to be wary because our pride and self-righteousness often curdles righteous indignation into sinful wrath, doesn't it? So the question is, how do we guard our hearts? Well, it is no accident that the Apostle Paul is quoting a psalm of lament. That's something that has been lost in the church today. And yet, there are more psalms of lament in the book of Psalms than there are psalms of praise. Because these are the songs of life in a broken world. And God has given us lament to channel our anger of, over sin into mourning for sin. And as we mourn over sin, the Spirit works in our hearts to show us the beam that exists in our own eyes. 
So lament reorients us to God and to His sovereign grace that has addressed our own sin. And as we are humbled by the grace of God, we are better able to respond to sin according to God's heart. As people who know that we also are sinners who have received grace. But there's something else that lament does. Lament enables us to bring our anger over sin to God, who is the righteous judge. It saves us from the hopelessness of thinking we have to take matters into our own hands. Because that's really, that's often why we get so mad, isn't it? That frustration of, I can't do anything. It's all on me. But lament in bringing our frustration over wrong that, we, that needs to be addressed but doesn't seem to get addressed. Lament reassures us that this God to whom we cry out is still on his throne. And that this God is a righteous God will not let sin go unpunished. So, let me say this. I know many of us are hurting and broken and angry over what's happening in Europe. Let me encourage you to pray Psalm 10 over the next few days and see how the words of Psalm 10 express your anger and frustration but express it appropriately because it brings you back to the sovereign God, the divine warrior who acts according to his purposes. And as lament allows us to bring our frustration with injustice and evil to God, lament preserves us from harboring resentment so that we do not let the sun go down on our anger. And Paul gives us a reason why we don't let sin fester or let our anger fester. We give opportunity to the devil. It gives Satan a foothold when we are sinfully angry. And it reminds us that the war is real. Spiritual warfare is going on. But the enemy is Satan. Not our brothers who do not see things the way we do. Not our fellow image bearers who do not follow Jesus Christ. The enemy is Satan, not people. And we resist Satan by pursuing reconciliation. We are called to make peace by dealing appropriately with sin and being ready to apologize and forgive. As Paul said earlier, we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because sinful anger has a way of destroying the unity of the body. And Paul doesn't just want us to stop sinning. He also wants us to honor God by doing what's right. You notice it's put off, put on. 
to challenge us into fighting evil with good. So the example he gives is in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Can believers be thieves? Well, during that time, a lot of, um, a lot of artisans would be dependent on seasonal work. And when it's not the right season, you had no, nothing to feed your family with, and the temptation would be to steal. We live in more affluent times, but it's still, we, we still have the temptation to steal in various ways. Paul's point is that a thief is to replace stealing with hard work, but it's not enough to stop stealing. You notice? He should work hard so that he could share with others. So that Paul is saying that as a community, we need to go from selfish grasping to generous self-giving. Not just about me and my family. It's about the needs of others. It speaks to a change in our outlook from being focused on myself to prioritizing the welfare of others. And isn't that the character of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who being in very nature God, did not use his status to his own advantage, but rather humbled himself. And we also see this concern for blessing the body in Paul's admonition about speech. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And if we stop there, some of us may have nothing to say anymore. <laughs> Thankfully, he goes on. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. But it's not, Paul is actually, in the language that he's using, corrupting talk. We lose something in the translation because Corrupting talk here gives the image of um, something that's rotten, rotting food. And Paul wants you to have a, an instinctive gag reflex. Imagine putting something in your mouth that's spoiled. Your first response is... <laughs> he says, that kind of language, that kind of speech does not belong in our mouths. Instead, we seek the benefit of others by saying only what will build people up. I remember my homiletics professor way back when I was in seminary, 20-odd years ago. My first sermon in homiletics class was the only sermon I preached in homiletics class, and it happened to be horrible. I missed the intent of the text and went down a theological rabbit hole that probably wasn't right. <laughs> and my teacher could have embarrassed me or he could have just said, terrible sermon, go back, do it again. But in the class, 
he very kindly showed me where I had failed to understand the passage and helped me to see the intent of the text. And he spoke so graciously and kindly that instead of being embarrassed, I came away from the class encouraged and strengthened and by the grace of God able to preach on that same text profitably. But that's what we are, called, we are all called to do in our interactions with people, in the way we speak to others, to be people who strengthen and encourage others around us to follow our Savior, Jesus Christ, not as a sanctimonious jerk standing in judgment over all these lesser mortals, but as the loving sibling who's rooting and cheering for you. And that motivation for gracious speech is found in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In this passage, Paul is echoing Isaiah 63 verse 10, which talks about the rebellion of the old covenant people in the face of God's kindness. He's targeting their ingratitude and he's saying that recognizing that the Spirit is at work to preserve and protect us means that we want to please Him. In gratitude for His grace towards us, we work to preserve relationships within the body and cooperate with the Spirit's work to build the body. That's why we speak graciously. Instead of tearing down what the Spirit worked hard <laughs> to, bring, to, to bring about. And then it, the goal is to please the Spirit, not grieve Him. And so Paul goes on and gives us this very difficult command in verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and splendor be put away from you along with all malice. We put these away because these are attitudes that destroy the unity of the body. But in saying those, but in, excuse me, in telling us to put away these dispositions, he is recognizing that we are not just people who sin against others, we also are sinned against. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and slander, malice, these are things that happen because people have done us wrong, right? We are offended by their actions. And, are, and because we have not forgiven people or we have not confronted them, they fester, they curdle our spirit. They are the response of people who have been sinned against. He tells us to put it away, and instead of harboring these attitudes, to respond to the people who sin against us the way God treats us when we sin against Him. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Essentially, treat people the way God treats you. That allows us to respond to the people who sin against us with kindness. Because God, in everything he does, is kind to us, isn't he? Even when he rebukes us, even when he disciplines us, is doing us a kindness. And in everything he does, he acts with compassion because he understands our frailty. Because our Lord Jesus walked this earth. He knows our struggles. He knows how hard it is to follow. He knows our temptations. He's faced more than we have. He is our compassionate high priest. And always, because we are continuing to be sinners, he forgives us. And by the same token, when people do us wrong, we show the same forgiveness that God gave us. We show the same compassion that our Father shows us. We show the same kindness that our God showed us when we were being foolish and we forgive because our Lord Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty for our sin by his death he bore the wrath we deserve and his righteous life that pleased the father fully is credited to us and that's why we are fully accepted and adopted by God as sons and have the right to call him Father. It's on that basis, the reconciling work of Jesus, that we have received and that we enjoy even now. It's on that basis that we treat our brothers. And yes, I know that is very hard. You don't know what he did to me. No, I don't. I can't claim that knowledge. I can't claim to practice this perfectly. But this I know. That we look to Jesus who continues to do this for you and me right here, right now. And we look to Jesus who is constantly at work in us with his spirit, by his spirit, using the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's impossible on our own strength. But we must do it, not in the strength that we have, but by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us. That's what will make us a church that manifests the glorious, multicolored wisdom of God that transforms sinners sunk in sin, totally depraved, absolutely rebellious, and turns them into trophies of grace that looks like Jesus Christ.
That's the vision that is presented to us in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, that's where we're heading. That's what we're aiming for. To imitate God as the objects of his love, adopted as sons. So that in everything we do, we reflect the sacrificial self-giving of Jesus that seeks the greatest good of his people for the glory of God. That's how we adorn the gospel. And as we treat people with the love that Christ lavished on us, we testify to the lavishness of the love of Christ. And again, it's not something we do. It's something that happens because the Spirit is at work making us into new creation his resurrection power working in us, renewing our desires in relationship with him so that we become more like him each passing year. The growth is not automatic. We need to work out our salvation in response to God's work in our lives. And our motivation comes from the fact that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in response to his love, we want him to be glorified as we showcase his magnificent wisdom that has made us God's holy temple here in Guelph. And our confidence is this, but this same God who put us here, who has begun the good work in us, will not stop until he has completed it, until the day Christ returns. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice to know that we are the objects of your love. And as we look at how we, as we measure ourselves against the words of this text, we, we must confess that we fall far short. When Paul tells us to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice, we realize that there's so much to put away. And instead of getting rid of it, Father, we, we tend to put it in storage and cover it over. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and cause us to understand more fully the infinite depths of your matchless love so that your love might melt our hardened hearts, hearts hardened by resentment and hate and bitterness so that we would learn to love as Christ loved, 
that the reality of your unfailing love for us would break through our stubborn pride and humble us so that we would learn to love as you love. And we thank you that your spirit is at work in us even now to make us a people who reflect that new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We pray that we would be this kind of people more and more for the praise and glory of your matchless name. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen.